Hey everybody, it's Max, and before we jump into Ezra and Nehemiah today, I wanted to announce something uh, that I'm really, really excited about. Um, those that know me best uh, know that I one of the things that I, I really love and really miss actually about pastoring is not just the the ins and outs of the day and the preaching and all that, but one of the things that I, I miss the most is, is the writing, and I miss uh, writing notes and Bible studies and uh, different things, and so what I've decided to do in these last few weeks is I've been collecting some things that I've been working on or have written, and I have launched a Substack page. And if you don't know what Substack is, Substack is an online platform for independent writers of really all varieties. And on my page, you'll find a few different things. Uh, free for everyone will be um, different kinds of theological reflections, uh, things that maybe I've read recently and want to talk about um, or write about, or a book that I've read, I'm reading. So, for example, um, this uh, over the last six months or so, my kids and I, we read through the Chronicles of Narnia. I read to them the Chronicles of Narnia every night, and I've there are some scenes out of those books that I had kind of caught my imagination, so I wrote about, and you'll find those right now on my Substack page. Uh, also, the, the company that I work for, uh, we had a gathering, and I had been thinking about some things coming out of that gathering, um, and uh, I wrote about kind of some of those uh, reflections as well, and you'll find that on my Substack page. And then uh, there also will be a subscription option um, for $7 a month. Uh, what I'm going to be doing is every week uh, on the weekend, so either, fri or either Friday or Saturday probably, uh, I will be writing a reflection on uh, that week's uh, readings for like the Sunday lectionary. So if you grew up in a church that used the Sunday lectionary, you are familiar with that. If you didn't, uh, what that is is a, a basically the over the years, the church, a capital C, large church, and different streams of the body of Christ have kind of done this a little bit differently, but they will uh, have a rhythm of reading, and they'll have kind of assigned texts for those Sundays, uh, and those texts are very purposeful, and there's a an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a gospel, and a New Testament reading, so four readings. And um, what I... What I will do is every week I'll kind of put those four readings together, so Old Testament, Psalm, New Testament, and Gospel, and um, try and draw a common theme maybe through them, or a thread or an idea through them, and write a reflection. And so as you go into worship on Sunday, whether your church uses the lectionary or not, maybe it would be something that you can kind of use to launch into the weekend and get yourself ready and in a place for for Sunday worship, uh, for taking communion, for singing, for prayer, uh, as you gather with God's people. And so that will be uh, every week uh, for those that are paid subscribers. And then uh, I will hopefully be working on a few larger projects as well, and those will uh, eventually be made 
available for paid subscribers as well. So you can find the link to my sub, uh, Substack page in uh, the description of this episode and really every episode. I think I went back and got all of them. So any episode that you listen to, uh, you'll be able to, to see that and you can click on that and would love uh, for you to sign up. And that way they come directly to your email. You get notified of when something gets uh, published and uh, would love uh, for you to join me on that journey as well. And so with that, let's jump into Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, we're back here with Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're going to jump into the actual text today. And so if you have not listened to the previous two episodes where um, I kind of do a little bit of setup work um, for how to read the Old Testament, how we see the story being uh, formed and put together, and how we can understand that story. Uh, I would go back and listen to those two episodes. Uh, Today we're going to jump into uh, the actual text, and we're going to begin in Ezra 1. And um, if you have not done so yet, uh, in the, the link below, uh, you will find, or in the description below, I should say, you'll find a link to a full set of notes that um, I'm working off of. I'm working off of these same notes here as I'm uh, recording now that's just about 70 pages long. It's essentially a short commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah that I've written and provided for free. And so as I'm talking about things, you can actually uh, follow along. The notes In the notes, there's a ton of uh, tables and charts and diagrams and things like that. Um, and so it, it would probably be helpful whether you can look at it while you're listening or maybe go back and, and look at it later. But um, I put a ton of time into it and would love for you to, to check it out. And so you can download that. Uh, it's just a PDF in the, the description below. Uh, but uh, today we're going to jump into Ezra. and But before we do, uh, we looked last week or last week, we looked, I'm in Sunday preaching, or I suppose Wednesday preaching mode for me, because that's when I was preachers on Wednesdays. Uh, we looked last episode at um, kind of the design of the, the Old Testament, and um, how the, and we talked about the Tanakh, and how there's the, 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 the law, the prophets, uh, and the writings, and how that three-part structure that Jesus references a few times is different than how our um, Protestant Bibles and Catholic Bibles are typically laid out, and how there are some pros, I think, maybe to how we have them laid out, but we miss some things in that way. And we, we located, at the end of last episode, we located Ezra Nehemiah as actually at the very, very end of the Tanakh. It's the second to last book. The only thing that comes after it uh, is Chronicles. So right before it is Daniel, then you have Ezra Nehemiah, uh, as a single book, as a single work, and then you have First and Second Chronicles as a single book and a single work. And so this is at the very, very end of the story. So we looked at kind of the big picture. Now we're, I want to look real quick uh, at how the book itself, as Nehemiah together, is laid out. And this is really actually crucial to see. And so um, if you can pull up the notes now, do so, like I was just mentioning, or make sure you go back and look at them because... T- Seeing it, how I have it laid out, I think will be really, really helpful. I'll do my best to talk about it uh, in a way that that everybody can follow. But 
Ezra and Nehemiah is we have it in two books, but it's really one work. Every uh, scholar really agrees on that. And there are, I think, three major sections of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, the first major section is Ezra 1 through Nehemiah 7. And Ezra 1 through Nehemiah 7 talks about the, the return and the rebuilding efforts of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we'll look at those, obviously, as we go. The second uh, major section of Ezra and Nehemiah is Nehemiah 8 through 12a, so the, the first part of 12. And this is, we'll see, where they renew the covenant. And it's kind of this redoing of the Sinai moment, and that's kind of this reenacting of, of Sinai, and we'll look more at that when we when we eventually get there. And then the last major section is uh, the, the latter part of 12, of Nehemiah 12 through the end of the book, which is 13, and that is how they regress from the covenant, how they, they fail their covenant renewal. So you, we have three major sections. We have rebuilding, we have covenant renewal, and we have regression. So we could, if we want to go all preachy here, we could use the three R's of Rebuilding, or you could say returning, but rebuilding, renewal, regression. That Those are the three major sections uh, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they, they are pretty clearly, when you, when you see it, uh, it kind of clicks like, oh yeah, okay, I see that. That's pretty clearly, pretty clearly um, laid out. And on the notes, I have on page, what page is it here? 13. On page 13, you'll be able to actually see all of the, the sections there um, and how they begin, how they end, and you'll be able to see and kind of trace through the pattern. So let's focus in here real quick on major section number one, Ezra 1 through Nehemiah 7. Uh, it's talking about the, the rebuilding efforts of the exiles who've now come back from Babylon. There are, within that major section, that first major section, there are three kind of subsections Ezra 1 through 6 talks about Zerubbabel and rebuilding the temple. That's where we'll start off today. Ezra 7 through 10, uh, Ezra restores Torah observance. And so this is where they start uh, reinstituting some of the law and stipulations of the law. And then Nehemiah 1 through 7 is rebuilding the wall. So you have Ezra 1 through 7 rebuilding uh, or rebuilding kind of their, their Jewish identity, their identity as the people of God. And they do that through three different areas. And one is temple, two is law, three is the city itself, the wall, Jerusalem. And so the, the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, as the people have come back from exile and they are attempting to uh, reestablish themselves as God's people in God's land and kind of find their way. Remember, they've been gone for 70 years, and it isn't just that they were on a really long, extended vacation. It's they were uh, taken over, driven out, the city destroyed, the temple destroyed. Uh, they, you know, the king slaughtered. They went through hell, um, quite literally. Uh, the prophets used the word that what gets, ends up getting translated as hell to talk about what happened to Jerusalem, that Jerusalem became like Gehenna. It became a a hell on earth uh, when Babylon 
invaded and destroyed the temple and the city. It was a, a, an apocalyptic event, a cataclysmic event, and that's what we see in like the book of Daniel. But all throughout that, uh, there was always hope of return, and so now Ezra and Nehemiah have picked up, obviously, on that historically, and they are coming back. And so as they're trying to rebuild their, uh, their identity as God's people in the land, the story takes, uh, at least the rebuilding phase here, it takes three uh, kind of different lenses. The first, Ezra 1 through 6, rebuilding the temple. The second, 7 through 10, the law, the, the Torah. And then the third, Ezra, or Nehemiah 1 through 7, is rebuilding the city itself, Jerusalem itself. And again, uh, if you look at page 13 of the notes, you'll be able to see that pretty clearly and how how those are are laid out. And this is pretty crucial to see as will I think will become clear pretty quickly, and it will be one of the major things that I return to and that we return to throughout this series of episodes, um, is when you can spend enough time in the book, in any book, and you can kind of begin to see how it's laid out and how those pieces fit together, the message really becomes quite clear in, 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 in many cases. And in this case, I think what the, the overall message of Ezra and Nehemiah is really, really depends on seeing this overall structure of these three major, major parts. And again, that, that will become clear here in a second. So also on the notes, you'll see a historical timeline. Uh, one of the, the difficulties of Ezra, Nehemiah, is it kind of skips all over uh, time, time-wise, especially when you start getting to when certain decrees and letters and um, were, were sent or written or given. Uh, the author just moves things around uh, chronologically because he's, he's working more of a theological point than he is a... A historical point, uh, or they. There's more than more than one author, more than one editor, uh, for sure. And so, Ezra and Nehemiah, three big sections: restore or rebuild. I think was the one I said earlier. So rebuild, renewal, regression. And and again, as will become clear here in a second, the message of the book, the overall message of the book, and how it plays into that one big story that we talked about in the first two episodes, really, really hinges on actually seeing that structure. If you don't see that structure, um, I think you you can walk away with things from the book that it didn't intend for you to walk away with, and I'll talk more about that here in, in a second. But first, um, l- let's briefly, briefly, because I it, to me it's not really the key point here. Let's briefly talk about authorship and date. Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, most surely has more than one um, author, obviously even just by the two names, and you, you, you can see in the text sometimes the point of view from which is um, being written. And so, uh, you know, and after it's being written, there's surely some editing going on uh, because you can see things that are moved around. So more than likely, 
whoever did write Ezra, Nehemiah, um, whatever they've put together was then later edited. Some people think that the the person who wrote Chronicles, uh, historically it's a, he's referred to as the chronicler, um, wrote Ezra, Nehemiah. Nobody's really, really for sure. But what we do know uh, is that it's this collection of writings that were put together um, over a period of time. I mean, you have narrative stories that, you know, last decades. You have royal edicts and decrees. You have letters. You have opposition, uh, things happening in Jerusalem. You have things happening back in uh, Persia or Babylon. And so there's, and all of these sources are being pulled together to produce the text. So when we say Ezra Nehemiah, one of the things that we, one of the mistakes we often make is we just think, well, that's who wrote the book, and that's just that. Uh, and that can rob us of actually seeing how the book is put together. And because when we see that, no, actually, this was, this has been crafted very carefully by one, two, or more people over the span of decades or however long to produce a particular message. Um, we, we need to see it that way so that we can see uh, what that message what that message is. Date, the date of the book of the, as we have it um, is kind of just as problematic as the author, the, the la- of determining the author. The last chronological indicator we have is uh, Nehemiah 12:2 where the author refers to Darius II, who ruled from like 425 to 405. So we know at the end of uh, the 5th century, um, the book was still being written. So it wasn't completed yet while Darius II was in power, because we have a a reference uh, in the present tense there. So a lot of modern scholars think that it didn't actually take its final form until like 300 BC, or like roughly around there, so a hundred years after that reference. It's hard to know, and honestly, it doesn't really matter that much. What matters, again, is I think understanding that these texts, like all the biblical texts, were written and crafted and put together very, very carefully for particular reasons, and that Things are in the place that they are, the way that they are, for a particular reason, because they're trying to, to communicate a particular, a particular message. So, with that, that's all I'll say about authorship and, uh, and dating, because it, it is interesting, but it's also probably not great podcast material, if we're really honest. So let's jump in. Ezra, Ezra 1 through 6. Ezra 1 through 6. Um, Ezra 1 through 6 forms this really cool uh, structure, kind of like a, almost like a, a inverted, not inverted, I suppose, like sideways pyramid or like a, a, what is that, a greater than sign? I don't know which greater than, less than, whichever. Uh, it, in nerdy terms, it's called a chiasm, where there's an A, a, a first section, and that corresponds to the very last section. And then there's B, and that corresponds to the second to last section. And then there's a C, and that corresponds to the third last section. And so it, it kind of is this, uh, almost this triangle, and it comes to a point, and a lot of times that point, that single point that has no matching 
doublet that has no matching section, but just that single point, a lot of times is either the most important um, part of that whole section or like a turning point of the whole section. And so here in, in Ezra 1 through 6, these six entire chapters, this whole first kind of subsection here, actually forms one of these chiasms. So, for example, it opens with an announcement of uh, by King Cyrus in Ezra 1, 1 through 11. And if you skip down to the very end of this section, uh, it also ends with an announcement of King Cyrus of in 6, 1 through 12. And there's a little appendix at the end, but the last section of the of the stories, 6, 1 through 12, and that's also a, an announcement by Cyrus. So if you, so what's 1 through 11, and then if you go 2 through uh, chapter 2, really the whole chapter, verses 1 through 70, that's a list of returning of exiles. And then if you skip down to 5, 3 through 17, that's also a list of returned exiles. So there's there's a matching section. It's just really cool to see. Again, you can see it on the notes it's really cool to see how this is designed and that it was crafted very well. And so the the middle section of uh, that whole chiasm is, and we'll, we'll look at this, is Ezra 4, 6 through 23, the opposition during the reign of Artaxerxes. And so it's the opposition that is coming against the rebuilding efforts, that that is kind of the the focal point of this whole, whole subsection. Okay, Ezra 1. Chapter Ezra 1, verse 1, uh, it says this, In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he might make a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. I'm going to argue here that Ezra 1, 1 through 5 in particular, and I just read the first verse, are absolutely, absolutely essential for understanding the claim of this book as a, as a single literary work and how it fits into the larger, the larger portion. So let's, let's look at these opening verses here for a second. Uh, in the first year of Cyrus, obviously Cyrus is a king. He's mentioned in uh, Isaiah 44 and 45, these prophecies where God seems to have chosen uh, Cyrus for his work, um, and that the prophet speaks that there's this one who will come uh, and help God's people, uh, but this is God's doing and God's purpose and so you can read uh, in Isaiah 44 and 45 uh, what the prophet says about um, Cyrus. But in, in 45, here's one of the things that he says, He, Cyrus, he will rebuild my city and let my exiles go free, not for price or a reward, says the Lord of hosts. So there's, in the days of Isaiah, which is in the 700s BC, so a couple hundred years previous, there is this prophecy that one day God will bring his people back from his exile and that uh, there would be someone named Cyrus that will, will 
bring this well, that will bring this about. And so by mentioning Cyrus, now we may just think, well, that's just historical setting. Yes, it is. But here's one of the things that we need to train ourselves about becoming better, better Bible re- readers. That by mentioning Cyrus, the author is not just setting a historical setting. He's letting the reader know, and he explicitly says this then, that this is a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah spoke. So when he, when he name drops Cyrus, this isn't just to let his readers know that Cyrus was king. His readers probably know, uh, you know, almost surely know that Cyrus is king because that wasn't that long ago. And Cyrus was a very obviously famous and powerful and important person in the ancient Near East at that time. So people would have known and remembered who Cyrus was, and they surely would have remembered, oh, that that's right, he's the one who would have let Israel go free. So the point here is not to remind everybody who the emperor was, who the Persian king was. It was to make a theological claim that everything that the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, that he will be the one to rebuild, that this will be the, this will be the work of uh, of God, that He will be confirming His word that He spoke to the mouth, uh, to the uh, through the mouths of the of the prophets, and that uh, Cyrus will be a sign that that is exactly what's happening. All of those layers, all of those currents, are flowing underneath that simple phrase in the first year that that Cyrus reigned. So this is we need to begin to train our eyes and our ears to to see. Uh, below the surface a little bit of that this is just some historical setting, that the author is saying that for a very specific reason. And so one of the things we can do is just say, okay, well, who was Cyrus? And we can go read in, you know, just do a quick search, and we can go read everything that the prophets spoke about Cyrus. So if we were to do that, here's one of the things in Isaiah 45 that is in that undercurrent, that is in that flow that Ezra is pulling on in the very the very opening line of his story. This is what he is pulling on. This is the the direction that he's beginning to bring his readers. Look at Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. It says, Look at me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness, and it shall not return, that ev- that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue swear loyalty, or some translations confess. Now, we've probably all heard that preached, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That was originally spoken about the day that Cyrus will come, and the day that he will bring God's people back and rebuild the city and rebuild the the temple, and he will be the hand or be the instrument in God's hand, and that through that, through that, this is what the prophet says will happen: that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, will swear loyalty. And so, when the author opens his book and says, "In the first year that Cyrus reigned." He let people, he let the captives go back. He is not just setting historical context. He is bringing all of the readers into the prophetic storyline. He's bringing all of it saying, this is the moment. This is what 
excuse me, this is what the prophets foretold. This is actually happening. So according to Isaiah, what we just what we just read, that when God forgives the sins of Israel and brings them back from exile to rebuild the city and the temple, the nations will also be saved and worship Yahweh. The salvation of the nations is the one is one of the primary themes of Isaiah, and we read about it that in other places like Isaiah 2 and 11 and 25 and so on and so forth, and in Isaiah 45, talking about when they come back, that this will be the day that the nations come into worship of Yahweh. And so from the beginning, as we're reading, we need to, we need to begin to have our radars go off and be able to see that this is what the author is trying to doing. And the way that we do that, just talking about, again, how do we become better Bible readers, is just to pause for a second and notice he said a specific person's name. He didn't just give the year. He didn't just give the the word of the Lord came to whoever. No, he gave a very specific detail. And, he, and the meaning is in the, in the scriptures the meaning is often, often, often in the details. The details that we just glance over because we view them as minuscule. If we slow down and begin to ask, why is this detail there? Why is this name there? Why is this place mentioned? The Bible will just open up to you in incredible ways, in ways that are unimaginable. You'll begin to see things that you have never, ever seen before. I mean, here I am going on now, what, for probably five, six, seven minutes, and all we've talked about is in the year that that Cyrus was king. Because there's a, a whole torrent of prophetic weight behind that statement, that when the author writes that and begins to to proclaim that message to future generations, there is he wants his readers, his listeners, to feel that weight. He wants to bring them into that story. He's not just setting historical context because that's what you're supposed to do. That's boring and no one cares. But when you bring the whole weight of the prophet Isaiah, and he'll do it here in a second, Jeremiah into the story, now we're, now we're dealing with something totally different. So verse verse 2, right, that this is, this happens so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now we have to pause here as well. So the second the author says that the following story, what he's about to write, and you know, whoever wrote that section, what they imagine would happen afterwards, it doesn't matter, but that this story is the fulfillment of the word of the Lord which came through Jeremiah the prophet. So, a simple Bible question is, what is that word? If this is the fulfillment of the word, what is that word? Well, let's look at a few passages in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, and in 29, 10, we read that Israel is appointed to be in Babylon for 70 years. And then after 70 years, Jeremiah says this, and this is Jeremiah 30, verse 3, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, and I'll cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they will possess it. A few verses later in verse 8, 
For it shall come to pass in that day, the day that I bring them back, that I will break his yoke from his neck and burst his bo- and burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no longer enslave them, but they will serve the Lord their God. There's Exodus language in that. Do you hear that? This is, this is about people who were enslaved, which they were enslaved, but not really. They weren't in Babylon. They were able to like live and marry and have businesses and all that. Like we, you, you can read about it in the prophet. It's not, they weren't slaves like they were in Egypt, but they're, it's being framed in slave Exodus language that these are, these are people who have come out of slavery and God has set them free. So the center of the book of Jeremiah is chapters 30 through 33, and uh, biblical scholars will call this the book of consolation. These are the chapters of hope that uh, are at the center of his message of judgment. And so in, in those three chapters, we get some just incredible promises of hope. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of them. In 3017, that God will heal the wounds of Judah and of Israel. In 31, 3 and 4, he says, I'll rebuild you and you will be rebuilt fully, O virgin Israel, because I've loved you with an everlasting love. In 31, uh, verses 31 and 34, we get the, the new covenant. This is what Jesus then eventually pulls on in the Last Supper. This is the new covenant. He says, I will make a new covenant with you. So when the book of Ezra opens with this is what's ha- what is happening here is the fulfillment of the word of Jeremiah. Yes, he's talking about the returning of 70 years, but you have to, we have to also see that Jeremiah didn't just prophesy that alone by itself as this single, you know, completely free word floating out there. No, there was all these other things attached to it as well. That the 70 years, the returning of of, uh, of the captives back into the land was a sign that their sins were forgiven, that they were free, that they would live under God's reign and rule, that they would be able to rebuild the city and the temple, that God would bless them again, and that he would make a new covenant with them, the covenant that they broke, and which is why they went into to, uh, to exile. He says, I'll make a new covenant with you, and I'll forgive you of all of your, of your sin. And then in 33, the end of that book of Consolation, he says this, and that in those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness, and he will execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. Again, this is coming back from exile. Now we're talking about you'll be able to dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, uh, by, by which she will be called Jerusalem, the Lord our, or no, excuse me, <laughs> he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And so all of this, all of this is coming up when 
the author says this is happening so that the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now, why am I spending so much time on just these first few verses here? Because if we don't see this, and there every book I think has these moments. Listen, we're going to work through Ezra and Nehemiah much faster than the pace I'm working through these first few verses, okay? So this is not going to be a nine-year podcast series. But if we don't see these, then we do miss a whole bunch of it. Because what I'm going to try and argue here and show is that the whole book of Ezra and Nehemiah is the authors trying to show that that these words promised by Isaiah, by Jeremiah, by the other prophets, all the way back to Moses, that they were fulfilled in these days of Ezra and Nehemiah, of the people coming back, that a covenant was was made new. Remember, one of the promises, I'll make a new covenant with you. We're going to get to the place in the story where they actually make a covenant with God. And then the story ends with them failing. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah ends with utter failure. And here's, I said I would get back to it uh, later. I'm getting back to it now. This is why seeing the big structure is so important. Is we are two verses in, and we're all we are already faced with the tension here. Once we've read the book and we know the structure, and we're rereading it here now. We're two verses in, and we, we have already run smack dab into the tension that this book is going to introduce to us. And that is this, is this is the story of the Word of God being fulfilled in His people. And yet, at the end of this story, they end in complete failure. We said there's three kind of rebuilding things that are rebuilt. They first rebuild the temple, then they rebuild the, uh, the, the covenant, the law, and then they rebuild the wall. In that final major section, Nehemiah 12b and 13, we're going to see that that actually has three parts to it. And each of those corresponds with these three rebuilding efforts. And the temple is disgraced, the law is disgraced, and the walls are disgraced. The whole rebuilding effort is for naught at the end of the story. It doesn't work. It, they don't, it doesn't actually happen. And that's how the story ends. It actually ends on a downer. If you read the story, it actually ends in a terrible place, which is very ironic because how most of us have probably heard this story and these characters introduced to us, particularly Nehemiah, because he gives some kind of good imagery while they're building the wall, is these are the, these are the leaders. These are the chosen people that get things done, that build things, that accomplish things, that have vision, that get God's vision. They don't compromise on it at all. They move forward. They arm themselves, and they build the wall and the temple and all of this kind of stuff. And so when churches want to do building campaigns or raise money or advance some kind of vision thing— you know, the pastor will preach through Ezra and Nehemiah, but the, the only problem with that is that the, the story itself ends with them failing, not succeeding. 
And the tension here that we're going to wrestle with through the book that I think is the, the point of the book, read from a now a, a Christian perspective here, is it opens with, this is, this is what happened to fulfill the words of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, and the prophets. And we read that whole story, and we're going to watch those words unfold before our eyes. We're going to watch how God is at work in their midst, bringing about these things, and yet at the end, they still fail. At the end, they still desecrate the temple. They still break the law. They still desecrate the walls and the city with all kinds of compromise and idolatry and all of this kind of stuff. And what do we do with that tension? How do we wrestle through it? And this is where seeing not only the the structure, the makeup of Ezra Nehemiah helps, it also helps to see how that fits into the whole story as, as, as a whole. Because I think what we, what, what we would say is that ultimately these words, these promises, this one that we just read about in, in Jeremiah, this branch of the Lord, the branch of righteousness, well, that's Jesus. We believe that to be Christ, not some leader in Ezra's day or in Nehemiah's day or, or thereafter. This, Jesus is the branch of the Lord. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the one who has loved Israel and the world with an everlasting love. Jesus is the one who actually makes the new covenant. They come to God in, in Ezra and in Nehemiah in kind of two different scenes and make a covenant with him and kind of have this, this new Sinai moment. And then they break that covenant as well. And then Jesus shows up with a piece of bread and a cup of wine and says, this is the new covenant. And that is not just language. That is Jeremiah 31. That's what he's doing. He's fulfilling that word then. And so we can see how, that, how the story all fits together. And so we're going to end here in this episode. Uh, we're going to end here getting through two verses again we're going to get through a lot we're going to go through a lot of the other stuff a lot faster but i think we we have to i i purposely wanted to and knew we have to slow down here so that we could see how this is all setting up uh, so that things here in the future will will make sense in coming episodes so with that i'll end there remember um, in the link or in the description below, you'll find two links. One is to my new Substack page. I would love for you to become a follower uh, of the, the the blog, newsletter, whatever they're called on Substack. I'm not even sure. Uh, but And uh, whether you want to do the free option or the subscription option, uh, that would be wonderful. And also the notes for this podcast are down there as well. So make sure you check those out too. So with that, until next time. And when we finish uh, Ezra 1 and get into further in the story, I will see you on the other side.